Hello and welcome to this special edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann. We're here in Cornwall, Ontario for the annual Canadian Bishops Plenary Assembly. This is the meeting where Canadian bishops gather every year to pray together, but also to share updates and discussions as to the work that they've been doing in their individual committees and commissions. We're going to get a chance to speak to several of these uh, bishops throughout the program today. But first, I'm here with Chris Dimitrenko, who's been uh, here at the plenary all week. Chris, um, how many of the Canadian bishops are here for the meetings? Well, I understand that there's 75 bishops, and so uh, virtually every diocese in the country is represented. So we have here in Cornwall um, a really good portrait of the whole church in Canada. So the meeting is a bilingual meeting, English and French, all the bishops represented are here. That's right. Uh, so the, both languages are here, as well as uh, not just diocesan bishops, but bishops representing the eparchies as well. Oh, right. Now, I understand that, uh, and I know that not all the meetings are, are open to the mm -hmm. press, certainly right. to the public, but there have been various uh, updates as to the work that various commissions and committees are doing. What can you tell us about that? Well, we have been able to speak with a number of the bishops uh, after uh, they submit their reports, and so during the uh, during the breaks, we've been able to interview them, and so some of those interviews you'll see on, on Perspectives, uh, and you can see that at saltandlighttv.org, our Perspectives programs where we speak with many of them, and uh, dealing with uh, a lot of the, the really important issues to the Church in Canada. Um, uh, in fact, I... Uh, a few days ago, I interviewed Archbishop Anthony Mancini about the sex abuse crisis. Um, I bish interviewed uh, Bishop Fred Henry about uh, controversies uh, involving um, uh, the Canadian Catholic Organization for Development and Peace and the, the ongoing process of renewal uh, with that uh, organization. So we're, we're able to speak with, with a lot of the bishops and, and get a sense for what's happening in those closed-door sessions, even if we're not privy to the details. Now, you mentioned two issues there, the development and mm -hmm. peace uh, problems and as well, maybe problems is not the right word, but and, and also the uh, sex abuse scandals. Um, what other topics do you know have been addressed or discussed at these meetings? Well, there's been a lot of discussion about the new missile and uh, the new translation of the Roman Missal, which will be implemented in parishes across the country, across most of the English world, on November 27th, the first Sunday of Advent. And, uh, and so most of the work has, has already been done in terms of preparing that missile, and it's, uh, uh, first of all, um, a symbolic copy was given to the Apostolic Nuncio, the Pope's uh, representative to Canada. He actually received the second copy of the Missal, and the first copy will be going to the Pope. And a number of other bishops received their copies uh, of the Missal. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, volume, very, very uh, heavy volume as well, but it's extremely well done, and the bishops are very pleased that uh, they've been able to, to finish this actually ahead of schedule. And now there's the ongoing work of, of continuing the catechesis uh, so, that, so that people in the pews can, can know and understand uh, the new missile, the reasons why a new missile was created, and also I think for many of them it's an opportunity to uh, create a, a better awareness of, of, of the liturgy of the Mass in general. It's, it's an opportunity to, uh, to help Catholics relearn the Mass, so to speak. You mentioned the Apostolic Nuncio, so mm -hmm. he was here on, on the, at the beginning of the meetings on Monday. Is it traditional that the meetings are kicked off, so to speak, by a message from the 
from the Holy Father through the nuncio? Now, I don't remember past years, but I believe so that it's on the first day that, uh, that the nuncio uh, typically gives his address. And uh, in, in many ways, it's, it's a perspective of the Vatican because he is a representative of the Pope. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so it's interesting to see what, what from his perspective, are um, important issues in the life of the church in Canada. And, uh, and he applauded the... Um, uh, the new missile, that was one thing that he talked mm-hmm. about. Uh, he also spoke about, uh, about World Youth Day, and, uh, and he said that, um, you know, it's somewhat discouraging that there's so much media attention paid to um, uh, situations where young people get together and things go awry, you know, like the, uh, he talked about the, uh, the riots following the Stanley Cup, mm-hmm. and he compared this to World Youth Day where you have, you know, 1.5 million young people praying peacefully, and it's too bad there isn't more media attention paid to this. At the same time, he said that, you know, thanks to the Catholic media, and he specifically mentioned salt and light, we are able to learn about these events in the life of the church. And, uh, and he also said that, uh, you know, we also have to, to be thankful for the Catholic blogosphere, even though there are uh, some challenges involved with the blogosphere, but they help get that story out as well. And another thing that he talked about was uh, uh, ecology, and not just ecology in terms of the environment, but uh, um, the ecology of, of man, and uh, taking a term that the Pope has used. And he related this to the issue of creating groups um, within schools to help young people who are being bullied because of same-sex attraction and how um, a correct anthropology uh, needs to be used that is respecting uh, the dignity of of the human person, um, that's respecting uh, who man really is in terms of of the ecology of man looking back at at natural law and that it can't just be, you know, so-called identity politics which guides um, our care for these young people, but it needs to be done through the thought of the church. Wow. Um, the bishops not only gather to discuss issues, but they also gather to, they get a little bit of nourishment, and it's tradition yeah. that there's a, a keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about who the speaker was this year? Well, this was Archbishop Robert Legal, uh, who is from Toulouse, France, and he gave two addresses. The first one was on uh, the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, and, uh, and so this was the, the document that was created um, following the, the Synod of Bishops on the Eucharist. And uh, the next address that he gave, part two, the next day, was on Verbum Domini, and that was the post-synodal apostolic exhortation following the Synod of Bishops on the Word of God that took place in 2008. And if you missed those on Salt and Light, you can go to, again, saltandlighttv.org slash cccb, that's for the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, and, uh, and you can see those addresses again. Now, uh, in closing, yeah. um, any any other thoughts you've heard from speaking to bishops? Because, I mean, bishops are all over the place. You see them at lunch, in the hallway, walking up and down. Any other thoughts that you've heard from, from bishops as, as you speak to them day to day? Well, it, it certainly is a privilege to be able to speak to the bishops day to day and to be able to get to know bishops from, from other parts of the country that, that I haven't been able to, to visit through my work mm-hmm. at Salt and Light. And also just to be able to, to take note of their fraternity uh, yes, they they work very very hard. Um, you know, starting with uh, mass has been typically at 7:30 in the morning, and they're often working uh, right through into the evening. Usually, their meals happen to have uh, 
uh, meetings embedded within the meals. Uh, they'll go off as, as, you know, if they're a part of a particular commission, that commission will go and have their meeting while they eat. So they work very, very hard, and yet you can tell that they really enjoy each other's company. And there's a real sense of, of fraternity within the Episcopacy in Canada. So that's very affirming to see. It is affirming, and I get that sense too. Thank you very much. Krista Matrenko is our uh, Salt and Light Radio news producer. He's uh, reporting from Cornwall from the uh, Canadian Catholics Bishops Plenary Assembly. And as Chris said, you can uh, watch a lot of what's been happening at the, at the uh, plenary at saltandlighttv.org slash cccb. Um, a lot of the videos are there as well as, as, well as the coverage that we've been doing uh, on our, uh, our daily update on perspectives, saltandlighttv.org. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. We begin our set of interviews uh, with Archbishop Richard Smith. He's the Archbishop of Edmonton, but we begin with him because he's been uh, newly elected president of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. So, Archbishop Smith, congratulations. But maybe you can explain to us what it means to be president. Does that mean that you're in charge? First of all, thanks. Um, and secondly, no, it absolutely does not mean that. <laughs> To understand the role of the president of the CCCB, you need to understand the role of a conference itself, an Episcopal conference. Every country has one. And the Episcopal conference is sort of the body of bishops, which as an organization exists to facilitate uh, the collegiality on a practical basis of all the bishops of a, of a particular country. So we stand at the service of bringing bishops together for dialogue, for mutual support, for um, surveying together the state of things in a particular country and how can we together best support one another in that primary mission of ours which is that of evangelization. So the role of the president is really one of service to the bishops. He's the one who chairs the meetings when they when the bishops gather. He's the one that is sometimes called upon to represent the conference at meetings at, uh, or with the media or with government or whatever. But it's, it's really a role of service and facilitation. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad you mentioned about chairing because I thought maybe the, the closest equivalent in a secular world would be the chairman. Are, yeah. Is it sort of like a chairman? Pretty much like that. Yeah. Um, once a year, the bishops gather for this plenary assembly. Um, again, is it a, is a, the purpose uh, f to pray together, to gather together, but also to, to there's some business that is dealt with at these meetings? The, the fact of having an Episcopal conference and this, these gatherings uh, arise really out of the nature of the College of Bishops. We are called to be within the center of that communion, which is the church, a communion itself. Uh, successors to the College of Apostles that gathered around the Lord. So when we do gather, what is uh, fundamental, what is central, clearly therefore has to be prayer. Coming together in the presence of the Lord, around the Lord, nourished by the Lord, to receive from him the uh, strength uh, through communion in the Eucharist, to receive from him his vision through pondering his word together and so on. And then, uh, precisely as members of this college, we reflect upon the situation of the church in our country, and depending upon the issues of the day, discuss, well, how do we best address them? As a, as a conference, the bishops only gather once a year? 
Yes, but together with that, it's important to keep in mind that we have uh, four regional assemblies, Atlantic, Quebec, Ontario, and the West. The West includes the North. And within those regional assemblies, there are a number of other gatherings of bishops. So, for example, in Alberta, where I live, the Alberta bishops also get together twice a year. Because given the nature of our country, um, we are very regional in terms of the issues of the day. And it's... Uh, they are very often, therefore, best addressed by local gatherings of bishops to face the issues and see how they can bring the light of the gospel to bear upon them. Maybe just to uh, end off, as you begin your, I guess you're beginning your your uh, your appointment as president, but you're already chairing this meeting. You think they'd give you a year? <laughs> well, actually, just if you don't mind, uh, uh, a bit of a correction. I'm not chairing the meeting. Okay. Um, uh, the I, this the uh, election took place yesterday. It would it would sort of come into force, become official at the actual end of the plenary. Okay. So the current the one who has been the president, Bishop Morissette of Saint Jerome, he continues to chair this all through the okay. all through the week. Okay, so that makes sense. So you have a year to prepare for next next year's exactly. meeting. Exactly. Um, well, thank you very much again. Congratulations. Um, uh, keep up the good work. All right, and keep us in prayer. Will do, Archbishop Richard Smith, uh, newly elected president of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, an appointment which will take place at the end of the meeting. Um, and also he is the Archbishop of Edmonton. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. I'm now with uh, Bishop Paul-André Durocher. He's been uh, elected Vice President of the Canadian Conference of Bishops. He's also recently been appointed the new Archbishop of the Diocese of the Archdiocese of Gatineau Hall, and we'll get to talk about both those things. First of all, uh, I guess I should call you Archbishop Paul-André. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Pedro. Thank you. Um, the role of Vice President for a Bishop's Conference, what, what does that job entail? Well, first of all, it means uh, belonging to the executive uh, committee of the of the bishops, which is composed of the president, the vice president, and uh, two co-treasurers. So I've been co-treasurer now. I've done two mandates as co-treasurer, so I've been there for four years. Uh, so I continue to work on that body. That body really works collegially in directing the day-to-day -day work of um, of the conference, you know, in assisting the um, secretary general in his work of making sure everything happens. So in that sense, it's not so much a, an individual position as being part of that body of uh, the executive committee. But as vice president, I do assist the president in particular, replace him when he cannot be at a certain events and. Uh, for example, in uh, two weeks, uh, the president and the vice president and the secretary general, we will be going traveling to Rome for three weeks of meetings with the various uh, dicasteries, the congregations, and the pontifical councils in Rome to discuss issues that are common between the country, Canada, and uh, and Rome. So, so. The, the work of the vice president is one of assisting the president, of being present to that, and at the same time of working with the uh, executive committee. Right. Now, um, you're going to recently, uh, soon, going to be moving, uh, not too far, because Cornwall is not that far from, uh, from uh, just Hull, which is just across the river from Ottawa, for listeners that might not be familiar with the Ottawa region. Um, this is going to be your fourth diocese, I understand, because you you've been bishop in two dioceses, 
this is going to be your third diocese as, well, first as archbishop, but you were also a priest in another diocese. So uh, how does that all come together for you? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. It's, I think it's my life pattern. Uh, I, I was, uh, my dad, my folks are from Hawkesbury, which is in the Ottawa Valley, uh, halfway between Ottawa and Montreal. My dad was with the Ontario Provincial Police, so he was stationed in Windsor. I was born in Windsor. Ten years later, we moved to Timmins, so I grew up in Timmins. I went away to university in, um, in London, Ontario, and then Ottawa, and I came back to Timmins as a young priest. Uh, Fifteen years later, I'm, I'm named to Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury, so I lived five years in Sudbury, and then I was named to Alexandra Cornwall, spent ten years there, and now I'm being asked to, to take on Gatineau. So it's as if, uh, I guess I've always been a nomad. Um, the, the difference this time is I'm actually being asked to leave Ontario. I've always done kind of all my belonging in the past has been in dioceses in Ontario, and now I'm going to be uh, moving to Quebec uh, in the Archdiocese of Gatineau. Now, uh, we refer to Gatineau Hall as, I mean, it's the, the capital region, it's the Ottawa region. How much of that di archdiocese is technically the capital region French diocese, or is it uh, the issues uh, or pastoral concerns uh, different than those from the, from the actual capital of Ottawa? Well, there's no doubt that the percentage of francophones in Gatineau is much higher than the percentage of uh, francophones in in Ottawa. Ottawa has, uh, you know, traditionally been considered a uh, a bilingual diocese. Um, certainly, when Gatineau was cut off from Ottawa in 1963, it lost a big chunk of its francophone population. Um, but there are still uh, many French uh, parishes in the Archdiocese of Ottawa, though. Uh, proportionally, their number is going down because of the uh, the people who are moving into the Ottawa into the national capital area tend to have English as their uh, mother tongue. Whereas in Gatineau, Gatineau has kept a very strong uh, French identity. On the other hand, there are a number of English uh, parishes. The old roots of Gatineau Hall are are very um, rooted in Scottish, Irish, and American. Uh, the the Mister. Wright, who was the founder, they say, of Hull, uh, was actually an American who came here after the um, American Revolution to, to start a agriculture and work with his family. So, so it's an interesting mix, but Gatineau is very much its own reality. Uh, it is very much inhabited. Many of the population has exploded in the past 20 years because of the civil service. And many, many of the inhabitants are from other parts of Quebec. Right. They've moved to Gatineau to work in the public service. Okay. Now, you're, you've been in Cornwall for... Ten. It's been 10 years? Wow. So, so that's a long time to, to, uh, to, to be with a people. So what are your, your uh, I guess, your hopes for the people of Cornwall as, as you leave on to your next assignment? Well, I must admit it's, it's not easy. Um, leaving Alexander Cornwall, I developed many very good friendships, uh, a good relationship, working relationship. Uh, the, the, the staff at the diocesan center is practically my second family. Um, I know people now on the street, people stop me, speak to me on the street, in the stores. So there's a real ease of relationship there. Uh, to leave that and to move to a place where I know no one for all intents and purposes. So th that 
humanly, at the human level, that's very hard. Um, and at the same time, I know that uh, the, the Diocese of Alexandria Cornwall is in a good space in terms of, of a diocese, in terms of where it is going and um, where it has come from. So my hope is that the, the seeds that I will have sown there with the help of so many other people will really bear fruit in, in the years to come. Uh, I think this little diocese of Alexandria Cornwall is, is a very dynamic little diocese and so I, I hope for very good things for it, yes. And now without, without asking you to peer into a, a crystal ball, what are your hopes for uh, Gatineau? Well, my hopes, first of all, are, are for me to get to know the people and to understand this area. Uh, I tell myself I'm going to be in intense learning mode for the next year or two, as I simply get to know the people, get to know the area. This is a completely new ball game for me. The fact that I've been elected to the vice presidency means that I'm going to have some juggling to do in terms of time and energy. So I need to learn how to balance all of that and, and find space to keep healthy spiritually and physically and mentally for myself. So it's really, I'm entering at the age of 57 into a new uh, stage in my life, which is, which is, and it gives me a lot of, uh, of hope and a lot of courage, but I realize also will be very challenging. Well, I'm sure you will be just fine. It's a beautiful place there, the Ottawa region. Uh, again, congratulations, Archbishop Paul-André Durocher. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul-André Durocher, it's uh, newly elected Vice President of the CCCB, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, and uh, also newly appointed Archbishop to Gatineau. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. Now, this is not the first time on this program that we speak about the uh, implementation of the new or the revised uh, English Roman Missal. We've been talking about it uh, for almost a year now in this program and in a lot of our Salt and Light uh, programs. Um, but here at the Bishop's Plenary Assembly, this has been a topic because this is the last meeting before the implementation of the Roman Missal. And so, uh, as we heard from Krista Matrenko, the, the very first missile that came off the press is going to be the missile that is going to be sent to the Holy Father. And uh, a missile was presented to the Apostolic Nuncio. And so, I'm joined now by Archbishop Albert Legat. He is the Archbishop of St. Boniface in Manitoba, but he's also the... Let me see if I get this right. The Episcopal uh, Delegate for the International Commission of, of, on English in the Liturgy from Canada. So Archbishop Legat, welcome to Salt and Light Radio. Thank you very much. Good. So um, I, I presume you had to uh, give an update or, or do a presentation to the bishops about the, what's happening with the Roman Missal? Yes, within the English sector uh, I have just completed giving a report on um, the implementation of it and also especially on the, uh, uh, the efforts uh, to help people understand the, the liturgical catechesis, both about the changes, but about the liturgy itself, the Eucharist itself, and as an effort to lead us to the date of implementation, the first Sunday of Advent, November 27th, but also on an ongoing basis to continue to help people to understand the, the depth of the mystery of, of the Eucharist within the, the words and actions and postures and that, w that we do together, the silence, all of that, how that whole body of 
liturgy becomes the expression of, of our faith, but even more the gift of Christ himself in his mystery. Right. Among the bishops, are there discussions, or have, I presume there have been already discussions as to how the Missal uh, should be or will be implemented in dioceses across the country? Is there, are those conversations happening? Oh, yes, and have been already for, I'm going to say, a couple years. Yeah. So most dioceses have had one, if not two, rounds of workshops with their clergy, with their directors of liturgy and their chairpersons of liturgical commissions uh, about the changes and how then to do uh, the implementation in the dioceses through workshops, mm -hmm. uh, through homilies, uh, bishops are sending out pastoral letters, uh, Bishop uh, Morissette, the president of the, of the conference, uh, issued his own pastoral letter for all Canadians in regards to this. And so there's been an immense amount of material prepared and anyone wanting to go on www.romanmissile.ca mm -hmm. will find all of those resources and will find the text and the resources, even a section called Frequently Asked Questions. So there's a, there's a plethora of resources uh, that's that have been produced and many, many efforts. All dioceses are engaged right. in helping their people to understand not just the what, but the why. And within even a context of um, continuing to understand the, the Eucharist more fully in its, mm -hmm. in its whole, not just in the changes, but in the whole of the liturgy. Now, um, even though each bishop uh, can uh, implement, or the, the Roman Missal can be implemented in, I want to make sure I get this right because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's not that the, the Missal can be implemented in different ways, but they can choose, for example, different musical settings or however they want to uh, uh, introduce those materials in their diocese. <coughs> Um, a lot of the resources are issued centrally from the National Liturgy Office of the bishops, so it's all happening, so it's not like each diocese can do their own thing. Well, the, what the National Liturgy Office provides, of course, are resources. So one of the resources in terms of the music was for all of the parts that are, um, the people's parts mm -hmm. and that can be sung. So along with the Gregorian chant setting that is within the Missal, uh, produced by ICEL. Mm -hmm. We uh, commissioned three composers in Canada to produce settings, but other composers could also produce settings right. um, as long as it's exactly the same words, exactly the same text that is being prayed. Uh, this is our faith, and this is what we pray, lex orandi, lex credendi. But certainly what the National Liturgy Office offers are resources, and then each bishop is to see in his diocese, mm -hmm. um, the way of implementing that common uh, text and the common uh, general instruction. Yeah. Now, there, there may be some people who are still hearing for the first time there's some change, uh, the mass is changing, or there's a new translation, or maybe they've even heard some of the, the differences in the text, and they're wondering why we have to say, and with your spirit instead of, and also with you, and they're confused. What, right. what would you tell those people to encourage them as to the reasons or the beauty of this new text? Right. Um, I would suggest to them that they ask their pastor, and hopefully the pastor is plugged into the resources and he will be able to give them, but certainly they can go online and, uh, you know, again, www.romanmissile.ca, and they can find 
the the resources that will help them to understand. Um, but much of the changes has to do with greater faithfulness to the Latin and therefore many more, uh, making more clearly the references, the allusions to biblical text and to text of the early fathers as they expressed the faith of the church. So many of the changes are coming back to more closely to the original Latin text, which is such a rich text because it's the text that carries the faith and the prayer of the church over the centuries, and then especially in terms of scripture and patristics. So do you think that the new text will, will help parishioners enter deeper into the mystery of the Eucharist? Oh, I certainly think so. Um, uh, for example, we've produced a, a resource called Celebrate in Song, and so it has those mm -hmm. settings for the people's sung parts. But also at the end, it has the four main Eucharistic prayers, the text. This, so this is not for people to have their, you know, reading it while the priest is proclaiming it, but rather, and the invitation would be for them to have it at home and to to meditate upon the text, to, to pray upon the text. Um, certainly we are encouraging our pastors to prepare well to proclaim mm -hmm. such that the way they proclaim the prayer is an invitation for people to enter into that prayer spiritually. So um, it's certainly an invitation to rediscover uh, in retranslated texts the, the faith of our church and to enter into it more fully. I, I don't want to let you go before I ask you about the Eucharistic Congress because you're also, and I'm going to jumble up the title, but you're also the Canadian Episcopal Delegate for the English sector for the Eucharistic Congress. Right. So uh, what should we tell our listeners about the Eucharistic Congress that's taking place in Dublin next June? Okay. Um, again, I would say ask their pastor, <laughs> hopefully, because in each diocese we have diocesan delegates, yeah. and they have been informa given information to spread out to the parishes. I know several dioceses have already organized groups through travel agencies, and but people can also go individually. Um, so, again, uh, to, and they can go on the CCCCB uh, website, and there is a link now to to the Eucharistic Congress, and it will give them all of the information. So it's a wonderful occasion. It's, it's 15,000 people, usually about from around the world, mm -hmm. uh, joyfully celebrating the Eucharist, reflecting upon the Eucharist, uh, receiving catechesis, but there's also devotions, and, uh, and there's a youth forum. It's, it's just a, it's a festival around the Eucharist to help us grow into it more fully. And, and it is a great festival. I remember Quebec City in mm -hmm. 2008. So it's a great opportunity for Catholics of all ages to gather to celebrate around the Eucharist, as you said. And we will be talking more about the Eucharistic Congress in this program and on Salt and Light as we approach that date of June. So uh, for now, thank you very much, Archbishop Albert Legat, uh, a man of many hats, but the most important one is Archbishop of St. Boniface in Manitoba. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Join us every week for Salt and Light Radio as we bring you inspiring messages, insightful interviews, interesting commentary and music, plus news updates and Catholic events from across Canada. Salt and Light Radio, Saturdays, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific, on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM.
among the various reports or updates that are given at the uh, plenary assembly are updates from the various uh, commissions or committees. And one of these is the National Commission on Doctrine. The chairman of this commission is Archbishop Michael Miller, Archbishop of Vancouver, and Archbishop Miller joins me now. Welcome back to Salt and Light Radio. Thank you very much, Pedro. So your report, is it appropriate to call it a report, or I guess what you... Was, it was a discussion of a theme, a, a document that is in draft form, but it was the members of the assembly did not have the draft in front of them. It, so it was a discussion about a topic that the uh, Commission on Doctrine is dealing with. So this is the, the document on religion, free, religious freedom and, or freedom of conscience? Right. It's a, a document called Fostering uh, Freedom of Religion and Conscience Today. Maybe, uh, maybe before you tell me the content or, or the purpose of the, of the document, why is this uh, of concern to the Church in Canada, this topic? Well, I think there are several reasons why questions of freedom of religion and conscience are on people's minds. The first, of course, is just looking at the international scene where we know that um, many people are suffering because of their faith, many of them Christians, but also some non-Christians, and that freedom of religion and conscience is something that we can take for granted in Canada, and so it's to draw our attention to a right that is enshrined certainly in the natural law, in the tradition of the church, but also in our own charter, uh, in our own charter of rights and freedoms, and in the um, UN's uh, charter of uh, human rights. So it's to draw our attention to that matter. Also, we mentioned that there are indications that we should also be vigilant uh, in, our, in our own country. Certainly not to the extent, thanks be to God, that is the case in, in, in certain areas of the world, but that there are instances where the uh, freedom of, of conscience and religion is perhaps called into question, you know, and some uh, professional, professionals, particularly perhaps in the legal and healthcare professions, are, are aware of certain restrictions now that seem to be being placed on this fundamental uh, freedom that we enjoy. Right, can you maybe help me with uh, just a definition of terms? So what would you say is the difference between freedom of religion versus freedom of conscience? Well, um, they're both uh, very closely linked and they're nearly always dealt with uh, together, but freedom of religion adds to it not just that one has the right to worship according to one's conscience in private, but freedom of religion brings with it um, a sense of one's ability to not just choose one's religion, but also to peacefully to propagate it, to educate one's children in it, and to act in the uh, public sphere uh, without any uh, interference. Mm -hmm. So it implies that the, ch that the state have certain or appropriate legal frameworks in place that would safeguard um, freedom of religion, because religion exists um, in communities, and therefore the community's life and the institutional presence of that community should also be respected, which is, conscience is much more one-on-one, uh, -on -one, an individual matter, whereas religion brings with it this huge uh, social dimension. Is the, maybe not the, the primary purpose of this discussion, but is there, uh, is it appropriate for this kind of discussion to be presented from the bishops to, let's say, government officials? Is that part of the conversation? Well, the, 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 the conversation is, 
in some ways to remind Catholics of the great heritage that, that is ours as um, those who have um, in, in many ways uh, provided the uh, theoretical foundation for human rights including um, freedom of religion is in many ways um, proper to the Western world influenced by, by Christianity. It's to recall that, to make us aware where this is not possible in, in, in many parts of the world. There are studies that we cite that suggest that up to 70% of the world is in fact living in places where freedom of religion is in practice not guaranteed, mm -hmm. although it might be theoretically granted mm -hmm. that religious expression is, is, is not free. And so it's to uh, the recent events in, in Egypt are evidence of that. The interference of the state in the appointment of bishops in China is another uh, example. Unfortunately, we have some cases also closer to home. Last time you were on the show, we were talking about an, uh, uh, the, the pastoral letter on, cha on chastity, um, which also came out f uh, from the work done in your committee. And also this year, your committee released a letter for, uh, on same-gender attraction. Um, how do these topics come about? How, how does the committee decide what issues to address or, or what discussion to have? Uh, it's the, uh, the members of the plenary assembly uh, um, suggest to us, uh, there's always a time during the meetings, what areas of uh, need attention that's brought to the uh, executive body and then these are given to us as a commission. We don't decide uh, on our own. It's the bishops as a whole, uh, pat, which passes through the executive, which says these are areas of, that the bishops are concerned about. Let's do something about this particular okay. area. So then this discussion on freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, would that uh, evolve into a pastoral letter, or do you know yet how it's going to be used? We don't really, we don't have the, uh, the final form in which it would, uh, that it would take. It would probably take the form of some kind of pastoral letter, not to young people, but primarily to those in the professions or for whom this is, in many ways, not just a theoretical problem, but one which mm -hmm. touches their, their, often their professional life. Well, what well, is an important topic because, as you say, uh, we hear in the news how uh, other regions and even in our own country with the government, and uh, I guess, creating a, an office for religious freedom. Yes, indeed. Um, the Canadian government has, has just done this. The American bishops uh, recently established an ad hoc task force on matters of, of religious freedom. The Holy Father uh, talked about religious freedom extensively in mm -hmm. his, in his um, World Day of Peace message for 2011 and to his address to the diplomatic corps. It, it's something that, yeah. that is, I think, very much on the horizon. And it is. Yeah, it is. It so is. We're address it. No, and that's great. So that's good to hear. Uh, another uh, uh, great work that is being done by the bishops here in Canada. Um, Archbishop uh, Michael Miller, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much, Pedro. Always a pleasure. Archbishop Michael Miller, he's the chair of the National Commission on Doctrine and also the Archbishop of Vancouver. Hello, this is Leonardo DiFilippis of St. Luke Productions. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel on Sirius and XM. I'm now with Archbishop Anthony Mancini. He's the Archbishop of the Diocese of Halifax and also the Apostolic Administrator of the Diocese of Yarmouth. Um, Archbishop, last weekend you were part of a uh, 
I think, groundbreaking conference that took place in Montreal, the Trauma and Transformation Conference. What, uh, what are your thoughts that you can share with us as to what took place in the conference? Well, that conference was uh, groundbreaking. I think it was the first time that we had such a gathering of people. We were over 200 people present, all of us coming from various parts of the country, and even it was an international gathering. We had people from Australia, and we had people from Rome. And the whole point was to follow up on what we had initiated here at the plenary of the bishops of Canada last year at the invitation of uh, Sister Nula Kenny, who had spoken to us about the unfinished business that we had around uh, sexual abuse issues. We wanted to come together, all of these different people, to see what we had learned from this experience, from this dealing with this crisis. And so we had people who spoke to the issue from different perspectives. Some of them were researchers, some of them were psychologists, others were uh, uh, priests and bishops, and we had the survivors of sexual abuse. So we had very different points of view. And uh, my, my perspective was to share with the people there what I had learned about priests, given my experience uh, as Archbishop of Halifax the last four years. Right. Now, it was a two-day conference. Um, what, uh, I guess, uh, a twofold question, what are your hopes as to how we can move, move from this point on and, and in terms of what we as a church could have learned from that gathering? Well, I think the whole point is in the title. We want to move from trauma to transformation. So the hope is that we would learn some key lessons from uh, all that we shared so that we would not repeat or find ourselves in conditions that would lend themselves to some kind of uh, crisis of a similar nature. Uh, if we don't learn from history, if we don't learn from the past, then as someone once said, you're going to be condemned to repeat them in the future. So mm -hmm. our hope is that we would find not only the causes, but uh, how we might help ourselves as a church to deal with some of these realities that gave rise to sexual abuse. There is no one simple cause for this. And that's one of, one of the pieces that we shared. But there are lots of different issues that come together. They can converge into a condition that brings someone to behave inappropriately. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, one of those things is uh, finding a priest or putting a priest in a situation of isolation. If he's on his own, uh, if he doesn't have the support network that he needs, then he is going to find himself struggling and inevitably looking for ways to cope with that isolation. Uh, the counteraction to isolation is, in my view, a new relationship to be developed between priests and people in the community of faith. A priest has to belong. He has to feel like he's part of the family. After all, if we're called father, uh, what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. If you're father, you have to be somehow be there to, to generate spiritual life. Well, you need a counterpart mm -hmm. to experience fatherhood. That counterpart is the community of faith. Mm -hmm. And that's what sometimes is missing. One of my worries 
is that in the future, because of pastoral necessity, we're putting priests in situations where they are still isolated. When a guy's in charge of four or five parishes, he doesn't belong to any. And that really becomes a major challenge for the future. Wow. Well, thank you very much, uh, Archbishop Mancini, for sharing this. It, it's important work, and it's not, it's not easy, but uh, thank you for, uh, for uh, bringing us into that important work that's being done. Thank you. You're welcome. Archbishop Anthony Mancini, he's the Archbishop of, the, of Halifax and also the Apostolic Administrator of the Diocese of Yarmouth, both of those in Nova Scotia. We're Libera. And you're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM Radio. I've now stumbled upon a good friend, Bishop Gary Gordon, who I, I guess I haven't seen you in, 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 a, in a while, but we see each other maybe about once a year. But my biggest uh, joyful memories of my life is that the week, it was only a week, the week that I spent up in Whitehorse, the Yukon, with you in your diocese. So Bishop Gary Gordon, uh, Bishop of the Diocese of Whitehorse, welcome to Salt and Light Radio. Thank you, Pedro. I'm glad you stumbled into me. It's been good. It's been good. You look good. Yeah. Well, you know, when you live that far north, you kind of get quick frozen. You're like fresh peas all the time. Um, Last time we spoke, you were thick into fundraising for a big retreat center. I believe you'd actually already broke ground to start building it. Where is that project now? Well, we did break ground because we put a little bit of a road in and uh, electrification of the property. Um, The fundraising is slow. Uh, partly because, you know, we have such a tiny Catholic population in the north, you know. On any given Sunday, if there's, you know, 500, 800 people going to church in the whole diocese. So in order to fundraise for the retreat house, which is really small in comparison to most retreat places in Canada, um, I need to make connections and talk to people outside of the diocese and uh, sort of give them the vision and the, the joy and the grace of having a retreat house in the far north. Right. Now, so, well, tell us what the vision is, because um, the way I understand it, this place would be unique. There is nothing else like it in the whole territory. We have not, no retreat house as such in the Diocese of Whitehorse. Uh, I suppose the closest one might be in Juneau uh, Diocese, which is the United States, and a you know, six-hour ferry ride. But... Um, it will really serve as a place to gather the pastoral staff of the diocese because when we have a meeting, everybody's got to stay overnight. It'll be able to do that. It will be also able to be a spiritual um, oasis, um, even though we live in an in a environmental oasis, uh, it's so beautiful up there, but it'll be a spiritual oasis uh, for the whole of the North, um, for the other uh, religious denominations, uh, for non-Christians, uh, for our Catholic population, um, a place of retreat uh, to be re-energized uh, in the grace of God. And that's what I'm hoping for. Now, one of the, again, memories, I have this image of you digging through dark, dark soil, getting ready to put some potatoes in the ground. How did the potatoes go this year? Well, you know, it's a little bit of an experiment. Everything's an experiment up north. We planted 900 pounds of seed potatoes. And you're probably thinking, okay, the bishop's getting really fat on potatoes (laughs) or making money uh, for the retreat house selling potatoes. No, my whole idea around the potato crop, and I planted a lot of carrots and beets also, uh, first of all, was to help out the food bank in a very tangible way Mm -hmm. uh, in the Diocese of Whitehorse, uh, the Whitehorse uh, Food Bank. 
but also to try and provide a little bit of a good example. A lot of people like to talk about the 100 mile diet and about being sustainable and all of that. It's hard work. Mm -hmm. And in the north, to be sustainable and to have a sustainable diet is really hard work. So it's just a bit of a, an enterprise to uh, show what it means to work hard, uh, grow potatoes, help the food bank, and uh, have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. But it didn't turn out too good this year. Oh, really? No. Oh, dear God. Mother Nature conspired against me. What can I say? We planted the potatoes, and then it didn't rain for six weeks. And I had no irrigation system, oh. so the germination was pretty minimal. Then it rained, which was marvelous. The plants grew eight inches in two days because of all the sunlight. Two weeks later, just as they're about to bloom, frost. August 1st, the whole thing was hit by frost, and I went down on August the 3rd, and all the potatoes were black. So when I went to the harvest time, I think I got one cooler of potatoes out of 900 pounds of planted seed potatoes. I bet that this gives you a lot of material for homilies, though. Oh, it's excellent. What it really did for me personally is it kind of gave me this sense of solidarity with 90% of the farmers in the world who are totally reliant on mm -hmm. nature for their crop. Mm -hmm. And if nature fails or gets a little upset or miserable, yeah. their crops are not there and they don't eat. Now, of course, I'm really lucky. I just go down to the superstore and I can go and get groceries. But it did give yeah. me a sense of how vulnerable the agrarian world is to the environment mm -hmm. and to the changes of environment that we're facing in the world. Well, and I would suspect that people who live in rural areas, and the White Horse is rural, uh, are very dependent on the environment, uh, the, uh, not just the farming industry, but the mining industry. How does working with the land help you? I mean, you've already told me that it helps you relate to them, but in terms of the, the pastoral care that you can provide for the people of White Horse? Well, it, I mean, for me personally, it's important to be related to the land. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't hunt, but I like to fish. A lot of people hunt. There isn't much agriculture in the north. Most of it historically was a hunting-gathering society. And we're totally dependent on the south in the north. We are not as connected to the environment in the north as people would think. Everything comes up in big trucks the, on the Alaska Highway. It all comes flying up there. The oil, the gas, uh, the heating fuel, the food. Um, I think we need to be more self-reliant and, and able to uh, create a better balance. So that's part of why I'm doing the potato thing, right. because we're not very self-reliant mm -hmm. in the North. The mining industry, of course, uh, is totally different than it used to be. People fly in for two weeks and then they fly out. There, there's no such thing as a company town. We got a mining boom going on up in the Yukon and all of the North Exploration. Very few people are moving into the area. People fly in from every part of Canada, do their two or three weeks, and then they're gone. So like the Fort Nelson area, huge uh, oil and gas fields, we've got camps with five and 600 people living in a camp. Mm -hmm but no one's moving to Fort Nelson. Right. So it's a, it's a resource-driven industry, um, 
and in a way, I think maybe that's how the resource side of things wants it. Mm. They don't want to have to take care of people. Just bring them in, make them work, and send them out. So there's the, the actual infrastructure in the territory is not growing. But you have to take care of people. So how do you, with because you don't have enough priests, how do you even begin to care for those kind of migrant migrant workers? Well, that's what we've got. We've got a huge influx of migrant workers, uh, be they uh, Canadian-born who come in on the mining program or uh, people from different parts of the of the world. Um, it's a big challenge. The migrant worker population doesn't want to always engage mm. because they're a little frightened. They're a little frightened of what can happen to them. And they're not staying. And they're not yeah. staying. So there's a, not a huge buy-in. But we have seen an increase in all of our parishes or missions of one or two or three or a dozen people that have showed up in a village uh, to do work. And so they, they, they're, but they're the ones that are there on a two-year contract, right. the migrant workers that are there for two years. The people that are coming into the camps for mining and exploration, they don't show up at church. They're working like seven days a week. Right. So it's a very kind of strange, very strong economy, but I'm not sure of the impact on the whole territory. Mm -hmm. it, it's not creating a lot of uh, permanent residents. Right. Now, I'm not going to let you go without letting you uh, do a little pitch for anyone that might want to come up and visit you. Oh, golly. Well, you know, we've got a gold rush going on. And there, everybody is up there looking for gold. The price of gold these days, all the exploration companies, it's huge. Well, I'm looking for gold too. I'm looking for golden people with golden hearts and golden souls and just want to commit themselves to the Lord and live in very isolated conditions and very isolated places and just love the Lord with hearts of gold and, and just love the people at, at wherever they're coming from and whatever they're doing. So... Um, that, that's my, my pitch. We've, we've got golden opportunities in the land of the Klondike Gold Rush. And heavenly rewards. Big time. And I can say I've been there. It, they are heavenly. Um, and maybe that physical gold rush will turn into a, a spiritual gold rush. I think, I think that's true. I, I, I mean, what really got the whole Yukon sort of going, other than the reality of our First Nations communities that have been there for thousands of years, was this big gold rush. And at the center of the gold rush in 1898, 1899, there was a priest, and he's called the saint of the Klondike, Father William Judge, who was a Jesuit. And he is credited with saving thousands of miners' lives because he built a hospital, he built a church, and he took care of their spiritual and physical needs like nobody else. And that's what the church does in the North. It's like a lighthouse in a wilderness that can provide real soul nourishment for people. Well, thank you very much, Bishop Gary. Bishop Gary Gordon of the Diocese of Whitehorse up in the Yukon. And this concludes this special edition of Salt and Light Radio. If you want to find out more about what your bishops are up to, check out your local diocesan office or website. Or, in Canada, you can visit cccb.ca. 
And to watch our Salt and Light coverage of this year's plenary, visit saltandlighttv.org slash cccb. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'm Pedro Guevara Man, and this has been a special edition of Salt and Light Radio.